the battle for social media supremacy has taken an allegedly sneaky turn. This week on Download This Show, a Facebook parent company, Meta, is accused of using tactics against TikTok, usually reserved for US presidential campaigns. What does this say about the future of social media? And when does social media moderation go too far? Are tech companies removing evidence of war crimes? Plus, Dyson has announced its surprising new product, headphones with a built-in air filter for your mouth. Why? All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. Ray Johnston here keeping Mark Fennell's seat warm while he's off making what I can only assume will be multi-award winning content. For those of you who don't know me, I am a STEM journalist and longtime guest on Download. This is my ninth year actually chatting on the show, so it is such a pleasure to be able to welcome our guests here for today. We've got Natasha Gillizzo, Product Manager at Flux Finance. Welcome back, Tash. Thanks for having me, Ray. Excited to be here. And we've got Michael Cowling, aka Professor Tech, who is an associate professor at Central Queensland University. Welcome back, Michael. Thanks, Ray. Great to be here. Now, kicking things off, there have been allegations that Meta, Facebook's parent company, has paid a political consulting firm to undermine TikTok. What is Meta alleged to have actually done here, Tash? Essentially, uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, has been paying this consulting firm called Targeted Victory, um, which do various PR outreach. Um, but they've been paying them to get this message out there that this is the thing that they want in the press, right? This idea that while Meta is the current punching bag when it comes to big tech or social media, it's actually TikTok that's the real threat, especially as a, I'm using air quotes here, but foreign owned app that is number one in sharing data that young teens are using. So, the the push here is to try and get anti-TikTok messaging into local news outlets that people still trust, that people still think are independent um, reporting to skew the message in a way um, that's favourable to Facebook. So what kind of headlines did we see come out of this push? What articles might we have noticed that were actually a result of this, Michael? So uh, the Washington Post actually uh, had some internal emails that they found that talked about this, and that's how it actually became apparent that this was actually happening, that they were, they were pushing this narrative about TikTok being uh, dangerous to teens. And I think what they're going for here is this idea that uh, using TikTok may mean that teens are, uh, are treated badly on social media, which I think is a very interesting strategy for Facebook to take, given that they're also social media, social networking. Yeah, and Facebook has come under its own scrutiny for how it interacts with and you know, uses teenagers, in a sense. Are they really in a position to be judging here? Well, I think that's the that's the implication, isn't it? The implication is, uh, Tash may have something to say here, is that they're, they're sort of uh, brushing the mud off of them and hoping perhaps to brush the mud onto somebody else. But I, I think, for what it's worth, that that's a fairly risky strategy when you're all in social media. <laughs> so, Tash, is what they've done illegal? Is it? morally wrong? Is it neither? Is this okay to do? 
I, it's not illegal. I, I think that it's definitely pushing the boundaries of um, ethics and morals. And, you know, when I was actually working as a tech reporter at the AFR, um, Facebook and Instagram definitely towed the line in terms of wanting to get things like op-eds into the AFR that their execs had written, which was something we'd always say no to because that, that wasn't in line with our editorial policies. But it was always interesting to me sometimes the behaviours push the lines of what journalistic ethics would be. So when this story came out that they were paying consulting firms to put sort of really push a particular message, I wasn't fully surprised. I, I myself have written favourable coverage on Facebook and Instagram. I'm a massive social media fan personally. Um, but it definitely pushes the boundaries of what is kind of acceptable because it's trying to distort or taint or push a particular version of truth in a way that's not super transparent with readers. I think that's I think that's a massive problem. Absolutely. And this consulting firm that they've used, what are they saying they actually did? Because they're denying these allegations. Is that right, Michael? Indeed. They're, they're saying, no, we didn't do this, despite uh, the internal mem- e- emails that suggested that they did. And they're suggesting that this is not not something that they actually did, um, and there's a there's a, a difficulty I think in in actually making that explicit connection back to Meta or Facebook, uh, but it certainly seems like Meta's doing that. And of course, the political undertones of this consulting firm are interesting as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the political undertones. You know, is it is it surprising to see? political tactics being used by social media companies in this way I think it is I think uh, I think it shows us that there is there is a blurry line between politics and social media and I think in the past uh, Facebook and other companies have tried to distance themselves from that idea they've tried to distance themselves from the idea that that they influence politics and yet they're simultaneously using a firm that also works with politicians in order to shape the narrative and so I think it's difficult to say well we're not going to ban certain politicians. We're not going to stop politicians from saying certain things, but simultaneously uh, work with a company to shape the narrative that also works with politicians. Are you surprised, Natasha? I, I, I'm not surprised based on the timing. I think you've got to remember that the, the timing that the sort of allegations are around is when um, a lot of the conversations were happening about breaking up big tech in Congress. So I think there was this sort of push for previously siloed private Silicon Valley-based tech companies to really start interacting with politicians and seeing them as um, people that they firstly were sometimes just straight up forced to have conversations with about different aspects of the business. But um, secondly, people who were becoming a lot more interested in what was happening on these platforms um, where previously these platforms were just not really in the political conversation in the same way as, you know, foreign foreign policy or economics or other kinds of uh, traditionally uh, the remit of, of politics um, have been. Um, social media and tech has really come into focus in politics in a much starker way in the last few years. Looking at the claims themselves that are out there against TikTok, are there any truth in them? What are TikTok saying about it? Obviously, they're going to deny everything, no matter what it is. But is is there a snippet of truth in these claims? Absolutely. I think it depends on how you present the information. So, I mean, some of the funny, I guess, the, the... the tactic used by targeted victory comes from this perspective of moral panic and like save your kids. So for example, looking at various trends on TikTok, um, for example, like the devious licks challenge, um, which is, I don't know, just high schoolers licking property. 
I, 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 I can't like, I'm not going to speak to like whether that's... Sorry, come again. Licking things. Just like licking things <laughs> under like hashtag devious licks. I'm not going to speak to whether that's kind of good or bad. Um, but like, I think the, the truth is that there are bad TikTok trends. Like, you know, there's teens on TikTok reenacting scenes from the Holocaust. There's teens on TikTok doing like point of view um, really graphic kind of like pornography, like making out with the camera. But there's also skits. There's also dances. There's also like this amazing feta pasta recipe. So I think it depends on how you present what is on TikTok because it's kind of all there and some of it is really disturbing, but some of it's really fun and positive. But yeah, it, there's truth in it, but truth depending on how, what you present and how much emphasis you put on things. And TikTok is generating a huge audience now. You you could say that a lot of Facebook's audience is heading over there so instead. Are they really a for Facebook ultimately? And I mean, I know it's very capitalistic to suggest that <laughs> that they're doing it because they want TikTok to be less popular. But it is interesting that TikTok, that Facebook in particular, is going for short videos. You may have seen this new Reels feature that Facebook has for short form video content, very similar to what TikTok has done in the past. And so the timing almost would suggest that they're trying to maybe steal away some of that business, maybe gain some market share in this space. But that's a very capitalistic view, Ray, and I'd hate to make that argument, but uh, it certainly looks interesting. It's it's scary for Facebook because TikTok is genuinely, uh, I mean, the screen time that people rack up on TikTok is, is pretty insane. Um, and I guess like from another perspective, like more looking from the startup side of the equation i think there has been a shift in the conversation about where to spend ad dollars and tiktok just wasn't even on the list a few years ago and now i do know some founders are spending more on tiktok ads than they are on say um you know facebook or google seo um i guess those are some sort of trends or changes that i've seen on the ground um which are real from um, if you're looking at it purely from that kind of like business competition sense. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology, culture and tech companies are being accused of removing evidence of war crimes. Speaking of TikTok and social media, Michael, what's happening here? So this is this is something that we've been dealing with a little bit more with social media over the last few years, which is this idea that uh, companies are very controlling of what happens on their platforms, and sometimes they need to be very careful about what happens on their platforms. And of course, with the invasion in Ukraine, we're having a situation where there are various things being published, and the social media companies need to make a decision as to whether they allow that content to appear on their social media platforms, or whether they control whether or not that content appears on their social media platforms, especially in situations where that content may be graphic, it may be violent, it may uh, pull on the heartstrings. And as you would know, there's not a lot of censorship and not a lot of classification on these platforms. And so uh, they need to make those difficult decisions. Those difficult decisions, how are they being made currently? We've got a mix of human moderators, artificial intelligence across many different types of social media, who is actually responsible for removing this kind of content right now, Tash? Well, essentially it's the platforms themselves. So each of these different platforms like TikTok, Twitter and Meta have community guidelines, rules and policies, community standards. They all have a slightly different name for it. Interestingly, they're all pretty similar. So they get their cues very much from each other in terms of, I guess, what the ground rules of 
what you can and can't upload. There are differences, but um, they're the sort of rules. And then, yeah, Ray, you're exactly right. It is that combination of human moderation and then increasingly technology-led moderation, which can automate the process, which is a really, really good thing because humans actually cannot keep up with the scale of what's being uploaded and what needs to be taken down. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting because it's like I find even like the framing of this, like this idea are tech companies removing evidence of war crimes? It's definitely like it's a really good question to pose, but at the same time um, you could – in some ways, there's a level of success. If they are removing this type of violent um, videos from the platforms, it, they've sort of succeeded in something that previously they've been accused of not being doing very well. Um, so I, I think that evidentiary question is like super important to pose, but I found it quite fascinating, the framing as though somehow now these companies have done something wrong in being successful in removing um, this kind of graphic content. I don't know. What did you think, Ray and Michael? Like, I, I, I was really intrigued by this. Look, I, I agree with you. I think it's really interesting that on one hand, they can be accused of uh, allowing unfiltered access to teens to those to the lick challenge <laughs> that you were talking about before, while simultaneously also censoring these videos of, of war crimes and of, of violent situations in the Ukraine. And it's I think it's really interesting that we've ended up in a world where the technology companies are having to make those kinds of decisions. And as you suggested, Tash, it almost feels like they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. If they say, well, no, it's an unfettered place where anything can be shared, then all of a sudden people say, well, you're you're hurting the kids. If they take the videos off, in the, in this case, the stuff from the Ukraine, they're told, well, no, no, you're censoring war crimes. And so it must be, whilst it's, it's odd to feel, feel for Meta and TikTok, it must be a difficult situation for them to be in, all of a sudden having to choose how to filter this content. For the people on the ground during this war trying to share the reality of their day-to-day, at what point should exceptions be made to allow for them to do that? I think that's the difficult question. I think that's the challenging question. And I think it's a question that broadcast media has been asking for a long time and has probably settled on some guidelines that we don't have for social media and for that, that good old 24-hour instant news cycle that we've all come become used to in the 21st century. And so whilst in broadcast media we make decisions about, you know, not airing this kind of violent content during the day when kids can watch it and all of those kinds of things, on social media, on a, on a global network, we, we can't make those decisions as easily and it's much harder for us to to filter that content and so i i have a tendency to suggest that 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 we shouldn't be doing as much filtering of this content but i understand that that can be a bit of a slippery slope and we have a situation where then there's free and unfettered access to stuff that uh particularly when we're talking about the kids that they shouldn't be seeing well, I mean, some of this content, to be clear, some of this content is getting across and it, it, it's not all being taken down. Um, there's a sort of famous uh, sound at the moment on social media. I, I can't do like it justice, but it's sort of like, da, 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 da. and this is like a, and then people will post like a day in the life video. And I've seen some videos of like Ukrainian teens doing like a day in the life living in a bunker with my mom and dad. And it's like, it's, um, you know, it's not violent, it's not graphic at all. It's just like normal families posting the reality of what it's like. And that stuff is coming across and it's not being taken down. So it's not that all of it's been taken down. I think, um, I think it would be really hard to draw the line, but I think I'm okay with really graphic and violent. Um, even if it is, there's this other, you know, need for, um, 
truth seeking um, and, and documentation to be there. I am worried about using like TikTok or Instagram as a repository for that when that could be seen by someone halfway across the globe in quite like and be quite distressing and not what they came from. Like I, I, I kind of like the idea of like having some kind of choice around when when and why you see that. I don't know how um I know one suggestion has been that um uh these tech companies should turn on if there's a if there's a war zone, um that content that's being uploaded in that time should be like centralized, like collected in some kind of centralized manner to be filtered through later, either by journalists or either by human rights advocates or, or, or lawmakers um, and kind of switching it on so that it's not just removed and disappeared from the internet forever. I think that's kind of like an interesting response that could happen um, that saves for this issue of not sort of just letting it out there willy nilly. Cause I think that um, could cause some, sort of distress and unfairness on the other side. But, um, yeah, my heart really goes out to people in the Ukraine because I think it is a very difficult situation um, and, and obviously highly traumatic um, in the in the extreme cases. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston filling in for Mark Fennell for the next six weeks. And I am joined by Natasha Gillazau, Product Manager at Flux Finance, and Michael Cowling, otherwise known as Professor Tech, Associate Professor at Central Queensland University. And Michael, Dyson have created what many assumed was an April Fool's joke. Describe to me what this new gadget looks like to you. <laughs> Describe what it looks like. Has anyone seen the the, the last Chris Nolan Batman movie? Maybe that's uh, if you if you imagine the character Bane and the mask that he wears, then that's that's perhaps close to what we're what we're thinking of, right? It fits over somebody's mouth, but interestingly, it also fits over their ears. And the idea is that it provides uh, a filtering aspect for them so that they can it can filter the air for them and uh, also the headphones are used to uh, track breathing and exertion and then and then allow you to toggle between different modes and so I, I guess this is a sort of a pure air filter which when you think about it kind of fits within Dyson's purview right they the vacuums and fans and various other things uh, but of course it's all about air yes that's right <laughs> it's all about air um, but when you look at it yes as you said Ray Everyone looked at this and went, this is an April Fool's joke. This is crazy that this is, is coming out. Um, and, of course, post-pandemic, uh, Dyson have either jagged this at a really good time or alternatively are uh, making a bit of, mo- of a mockery of the idea that we're all, try- we're all doing this now. I'm, I'm not sure which it is. It's, it's a crazy-looking device. So what benefits is Dyson claiming this product will bring to your life, Natasha? So the main benefit is like a health benefit. Um, and I too, I genuinely thought this was an April Fool's gag when I first saw the visuals. And then when I found out it was a real product, I was like, this is definitely intriguing. Um, Chief engineer Jake Dyson, he's he's come out the gate saying, you know, air pollution is a global problem. It affects us everywhere we go. And so the Dyson zone um, is purifying the air that you breathe on the move. Um, it's very like apocalypse now. Um, it's kind of interesting though, because it's sort of like, if you speak to people who've lived in high pollution areas for a long period of time, um, the concept of clean air, like, you know, in some ways, clean, clean air, clean water, we treat these as, as they are fundamental human rights and we also treat them as a given. But I think people do have experience, like, you know, whether it's in Shanghai or Los Angeles, experiences of places where that's not a given. And um, I can kind of 
giggle a bit more like living in Sydney, but if I think about those areas, I can see that there might actually be a genuine need for um, maybe not wearing this 24-7, but, you know, something that purifies there. This is this is this is unique. This is a unique play, though, for sure. I think it's easy to assume that a gadget like this came out of the pandemic. We did see a lot of personal air filtration devices at most recent consumer technology expos, for example. But this has been in the works for some time, hasn't it, Michael? It has indeed. It's actually a. It's hard to believe, but it's actually a pre-pandemic product. Um, which, again, you, when you think about it, kind of fits with Dyson. And I take Tasha's point that uh, in Australia we take it for granted. I think as Australians we look at this and go, of course, this is crazy, right? But in China, in, in Shanghai, for example, as Tash mentioned, they, they do have polluted air, a daily polluted air problem. And so you can see somebody putting this on as they walk out into the um, into the city to try and make sure that they get purified air uh, whilst they're out in the great outdoors. Of course, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have this post-apocalyptic future (laughs) despite that. Mad Max. Well, I am clamouring to get my hands on one because I want to see what it's actually like. I want to see if the headphones are decent as well because to combine the two is just kind of bizarre to me. But what have you seen about what critics have to say? about this product? Are they are they singing its praises? Are they saying it's ridiculous, Tash? I think, yeah, so some critics are saying it's ridiculous. Some some critics are saying, you know, consumers won't get around this. But it, to some extent, I'm kind of like, come on, guys. Like, this is Dyson's thing. Like, Dyson do, Dyson do edgy products and price them at points that people are like, no one will pay for this, no one will want this. Um, but they've got this sort of, like, history of um, – what would you call it? kind of almost like diligence at having a concept and really inventing something unique and um and then getting it to market so i it's hard to imagine but i kind of i appreciate the hustle in a way like this is genuinely like something kind of new like and it's not it's not harming anyone um i think it's a bit sad the idea of kind of like private companies having to devise these highly individualized solutions to something that's probably like a ecological problem um that kind of saddens me but it doesn't doesn't mean that like dyson are in the wrong here or that people won't get around it um yeah, I'm keen to try it, to be honest. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Amazon workers are starting to unionise. Staten Island, New York warehouse workers, they've voted to unionise. While in Alabama, one vote was so close, there is a recount underway at time of recording. Now, I can only assume that unionising is in response to the working conditions at Amazon that we've all heard some horrific horror stories about in the past. Michael, what is working in an Amazon factory like now? Why are people unionising? We've heard, as you suggested, we've heard for a number of years that working in an Amazon factory is a is a high-stress job. Uh, you're working with all the machines and all of the algorithms. And I think as as end users, we all assume that a computer picks things from, from go to woe, right? But in actual fact, still in Amazon factories, there's a large proportion of people that are employed as pickers and as people that will collect the products. And the metrics 
metrics that are used to measure the uh, the way that those people work have, have for a long time been identified as as pretty uh, pretty aggressive. Ideas of of people suggesting that they only have minutes or or less than minutes to collect each individual product, and each product is 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 then marked and tagged as being collected, so they get metrics generated about them to the point where uh, people have suggested that they don't have time for a bathroom break or a lunch break, and there's stories of people, you know, uh, wetting themselves and things in order to meet those metrics. And so I think it's not surprising that we now have various places in the United States starting to say, well, no, we need to we need to unionize. We need to we need to start pushing against this culture of uh, of, of of aggressive measurements and marketing and 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 uh, measurements and and tactics and analytics of measuring how our our employees are doing. Amazon has been very vocal in being against this unionisation occurring. What's the likely outcome for the company as a whole if all those factories just one by one do become unionised? And and do you think that that's likely to happen, Tash? I think it's too early to say, but you know, a couple contextual factors here. Amazon is the second largest private employer in the United States. Um, the demands from workers are for higher wages, longer breaks, and better job security. Uh, some workers were fired during the pandemic for protesting the sanitation and health conditions that they were required to work, were required to work in. Um, remembering, you know, the US had a very different attitude state by state to sort of the concept of lockdowns and not the same, not necessarily the same level of, uh, protection, I suppose, that Australia did. Not that it was perfect here. Um, I think also, you know, one more thing about Amazon, like if we just think about the history of kind of dehumanizing practices, in 2016, two academics revealed that Amazon had actually patented a metal enclosure for transporting workers around its warehouses. Um, it, it didn't actually make it, but this I think this speaks to some of the highly mechanized, efficient, profit-driven thinking that's just so central to how Amazon views its workers, not necessarily as people doing a job, but as more kind of like numbers on, you know, line item um. So this mentality is very, very deeply embedded in Amazon. And I think it would take, um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pushback from workers, um, to, to see any significant change. But this is like the first union, right? This is like, it's, it's, it's not early days in the conversation against Amazon, but it's, it's too early to say like what the effect is going to be on the company and the conditions. Michael, what do you think the impact will be on the tech industry as a whole if Amazon, you know, does have its workers unionise and is forced to up the standards of those working conditions. I mean, idealistically, we'd hope that everybody would be paid more money and <laughs> the world would be a better place. Uh, realistically, I think what has happened to us over the last uh, 30, 20, 30 years is that we've all settled into this idea of, of instant gratification. We've all settled into this idea that we can get onto Amazon and we can buy a product and that product can arrive, in some cases, on our doorstep later that day or the next day. And I think that's enabled in part by these workers that we're talking about. It's not only the algorithms and it's not only the technology, but it is actually the workers. And so if those workers are able to argue for bigger breaks and higher pay to the point where Amazon can employ less of them, well, then maybe as consumers, we might need to accept the fact that, that we don't aren't able to have that instant gratification, that that global village style that we used to have in the past. And so there may be a shift, uh, but I do agree that it's a long, 
long road to hoe. One one company, uh, one union winning this in New York, another one not quite winning it in Alabama. I think we're still some way from this making a major change to Amazon's business practices. Well, that is all that we have time for on the show today. Thank you to Natasha Gillazo, Product Manager at Flux Finance. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Ray. And Michael Cowling, aka Professor Tech, Associate Professor at Central Queensland University. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ray. It's been great to be here. Now, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 